Please turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. As I read in your hearing, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 20 verses. chapter 2 verse 1 and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this census first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria so all went to be registered everyone to his own city Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then they just said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered, pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. I'm sure that um, most of you will agree with me that um, Christmas, by and large, has lost its meaning, you know, um, today. For most people, the Christmas story is a very nice story for children. Even in some evangelical churches today, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
is to be acted out in place to entertain the congregations. However, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is a very serious event. It's the most momentous event in the history of mankind. Now, this evening, I want to talk to you about the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas. <clears throat> now, in saying that, I'm assuming that there's something wonderful about Christmas. And um, if I were to ask you what is wonderful about Christmas, I'll get all kinds of um, you know, um, um, response and so on. But there's something very, very wonderful about Christmas. What is it? What's wonderful about Christmas? To find out what the wonder of Christmas is, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is Christmas all about? What is Christmas all about? Well, Christmas is about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. This is the wonder of Christmas, that Christ came into the world. That's the wonder of Christmas. I'm sure I can sit down now, having said everything that I need to say. All over the world, his birth is celebrated, apart from in ten countries. All over the world, the birth of our Lord is celebrated. So the question we need to ask is this. Who exactly is this baby? You know, that causes so much excitement about him. Who is he? Who is he? Why are we all so excited about him? Well, the Bible tells us who this baby is. And I think it's important for us to know, you know, who this baby actually is. Now, the Bible tells us that, you know, this baby that was born, that, you know, we talk about, is God himself. He's God the Son. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. The God that you and I cannot see, Christ makes him known to us. Again, we read in Colossians 1.19, For in him the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. That is, Jesus is everything that God is. So this baby that came, you know, it's actually God, you know, come in the flesh. And this baby is worshipped as God. We find in the scriptures, time and again, he is worshipped as God. The one that you know you and I will know was you know Thomas. When the Lord appeared to the disciples, he wasn't there. And when they told him, We've seen the Lord, he said, Oh no, I'm not going to believe it until I put my you know finger in his nail prints and so on. Eight days later, the Lord you know came and went straight for Thomas. He said, Thomas, don't be you know unbelieving, put your finger you know in my nail print and so on. Thomas fell on his face and cried out, My Lord and my God, and worshipped him. When the disciples were in the boat, um, you know, going, you know, to Capernaum, and then um, the, the boat was, you know, tossed, you know, um, to and fro, and they were afraid. And um, as they looked, they saw the Lord, you know, coming. Peter said, "If it's you, Lord, tell me to come to you." The Lord says, "Come," and uh, he came. And after a while, he took his face off, you know, of the Lord and he began to sink. And the Lord caught hold of him, and immediately they were in the boat, and the. You know, the, you know, the sea, you know, um, you know went you know, very quiet. And they worshipped him. They worshipped him. And you find in so many passages, the Lord Jesus Christ was worshipped. He did what only God could do. He forgave sins. 
Only God can forgive sins, and our Lord Jesus Christ forgives sins. Now, the Catholic Church, you know, believes that you know their priests could actually forgive sins. What delusion! You know, what delusion that was. I can remember being a Catholic. I used to, um, you know, go to confession. You know, every Saturday, I will go from home. I will, you know, go to the church, and I'll tell this priest, you know, to forgive me, for, you know, you know, because I've sinned, and he'll tell me to go and um, say some um, hocus pocus, whatever. And um, he, he, you know, he claims to be able to absorb me of my sins. What impudence that was! Only God can forgive sins, and our Lord Jesus Christ proved that He was God by forgiving sins. But there's more. The Bible tells us that this baby that was born is actually the creator of all things. He's the creator of all things. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. <clears throat> Sorry, Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the creator. John chapter 1 and verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was nothing made that was made. He made everything. He made everything. He is invested with great authority as well. He's the only person who had the authority to say to people, follow me, and they left everything and they followed him. He's the only one, you know, who, you know, could, um, you know, say to the regency, be still, and and there was calm. Was the only person with authority to cast out demons, to say to the demons, come out of him, and immediately, you know, they left him. And he made stupendous claims about himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ made some incredible claims about himself. I and the Father, we are one. The Jews knew exactly what he meant by that. Because they tried, they took stones to stone him. And when he asked them this, you know, they said, well, you know, it's because you make yourself equal with God. That's why we're trying to stone you. They knew exactly what he meant. I and the Father are one. Again, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall never walk in darkness. No human being can make such claims. Absolutely impossible. You know, no guru, no um, priest, no pope, not, nobody can make such a claim. Only Christ and Christ alone. And that is because, you know, he was God. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What a tremendous claim you know, that was. He is the ultimate reality, he tells us. This is that baby that was born in Bethlehem. This is you know, who you know, he is, you know, God in the flesh. And, um, and the wonder of Christmas is that God, the creator of all things, left heaven and came into this world. That's the wonder of Christmas. He left heaven. That place of absolute splendor and glory and magnificence. And he came to this world full of pain and sorrow and agony. And he put up with it. That's the wonder of Christmas. 
But then we must go on and ask the question, why did he come? Why did he come? Why did God leave heaven and come into this world? The answer is very, very simple. He came to deal with our greatest problem. The problem of sin. We are all sinners. Doesn't matter what excuses people might make. People say, oh, well, you know, well, we all make, you know, um, you know, mistakes, you know, sometimes. Sin is not a mistake. We're all taking the wrong turn from time to time. No, no, it's got nothing to do with that. Sin is a crime against God. Sin is an affront against God's holiness. Sin is breaking God's laws. And that, very serious. Serious enough for Christ to leave heaven and come to deal with. The Bible says that you and I are sinners. Whether we admit it or not, that's not the point. Even our experience tells us that we are sinners. You know, the Bible testifies to the fact that you and I are sinners. Whether we believe it or not, it's irrelevant. The fact is we are sinners. And we know it deep down. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a righteous man that does good and does not sin. We are all sinners before God. Sin is our greatest problem. Sin is your greatest problem. I'm aware that you might have other um, problems. Some of them are very big. But I can assure you there's none of them as great as your sin. Your sin is your greatest problem. Your sin poses the greatest threat to your eternal well-being. Sin has serious consequences. First of all, in this life. In this life, your sin separates you from God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 makes it very clear. Your sin has made a separation between you and your God. God made us for himself. To be separated from God is to be separated from the life of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, you know, puts it very well. And it's very, very sobering. It says, separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. That is destitution. No hope. No God in the world. In other words, there's no recourse to resources to help us to cope, you know, with our problems in this world. There's nowhere to turn to. People that reject Christ think that they've been very clever. They're not being clever at all. They're not being clever at all. I cannot think of a more helpless and hopeless situation than to be without Christ in this world. Not to have any hope whatsoever. Not to have any God in this world. No wonder some people commit suicide because they don't know where to turn. And so in this life, it has serious consequences to reject Christ. You know, puts you in a very, very hopeless and helpless situation. And in the life to come, if that sin continues and is not dealt with, it will mean life in hell for all eternity. Now read the book of Revelation. And see how God describes hell. 
is so horrible. It's so bad. I can't even imagine someone spending eternity in hell. No release. Nothing at all. Pain day and night. There forever, the scripture says. In that lake of fire and so on. This is what Christ has come to deliver us from. That's why he came. No one, no one could deal with sin. It says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. I'm not talking about physical death, we're all going to die. But it's talking about a spiritual death, that eternal separation from God for all eternity in hell. And no one could deal with sin. We're all part of the problem. No priest could deal with sin. No vicar. No minister. No prophet. Not even the apostles could deal with sin. There's but one person who could deal with our sin. And that is that little baby born in a, you know, and them lying in a manger just over 2,000 years ago. He's the only one that could deal with our sin problem. You will remember that before Christ was born, the angel came to Mary and said to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear, you know, you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. That's what he came for. To save people from their sin. Again, you know, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 15, this is a faithful saying, worthy of full acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Our Lord didn't come so we can have mince pies and, um, you know, turkey and so on. No. No. Very, very serious. Came to deal with something far, far more serious than all of that. Think about it. Jesus Christ left heaven and came to this world to save you from your sin. It was because of you that Christ came into the world. Think about it. <coughs> when Jesus was born, an angel came and announced his birth to some shepherds that we read in a, um, in a few minutes ago in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. The angel came and then brought you know, this message to them that Christ has been born. At that time, the Jews had been conquered and they were under Roman rule and they hated you know, the Romans ruling over them. For centuries, the Jews you know, had looked forward to the coming of the Savior. They believed that the Messiah would be a great warrior who will appear, set up his headquarters in Jerusalem, gather an army, and um, you know, defeat the Romans, and usher in a golden age, a more prosperous age for Israel. The angel's announcement 
but um, was that that Messiah, that Savior had arrived. He is born this day, the, you know, the angels you know, told the shepherds. Centuries of waiting has ended. He is here. You can see it for yourself. You can confirm what I said to you. It says, go. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That Savior has come. That Savior was born to save them from their sins. This was their greatest problem. This was their greatest need. But they were not interested in that at all. They were not interested at all you know, in that. They only wanted a savior who will deliver them from the rule of the Romans. Someone to solve their immediate problem. That's what they were interested in. That's why they reject Jesus till this day. Jesus didn't save them from the, from, from the Jews. He didn't come for that. He came to save them from their sin. But we were only interested in someone to save them from their immediate political problems. They were more interested in the here and now. Many people are like that today. Many are like that today. Just like the Jews, they are more concerned about their immediate situation. More concerned about their money, about their jobs, about their health and pensions and pleasures and so on. That's what, you know, that's the sphere of their concern for a lot of people today. They are not concerned about where they're going to spend eternity. And so they give priority to that which is temporary. That which wouldn't help them at the crucial time, at the time when it matters most. These things will not help them at all. All your money and your pleasure and so on will not help you when you face death. Won't help you. It won't help you on the day of judgment when you have to come and give an account to God. Or you know, you can pile all your money, it's not going to help you at all. Above everything. We should be more concerned about where we spend eternity. This, I say to you, is our greatest priority in life. Where we spend eternity. Now the good news is that the Messiah has come. Not just for the Jews, but for all people as it tells us there in our text in verse 10. Regardless of our nationality or age or you know, social status or whatever. The Lord Jesus Christ has come for all, all people. All people. Jesus has come to save us from our sin, from the wrath of God, and from damnation in hell. At last, mankind will be delivered from the tyranny and the oppression of sin which has enslaved him for a long time. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ delivers us from bondage to the devil, following and doing the will of the devil. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that as well. And that's where most of us are at. We're following you know, the devil. He's, been, he's ruling us. We're enslaved you know, to him. And we're enslaved you know, to the law. And Christ has come to deliver us from bondage to the law. 
and bondage to death. Hebrews 2 and 15 tells us that, you know, he will deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Many people today, they might be very bold in saying, I don't believe in God as well, but I tell you one thing, they are fearful of death. They are fearful of death. I would say that they are in bondage, and it's true. That's why in this country, people don't talk about death. They don't like to talk about it. Jesus was born to set his people free from utter destruction. So this baby, lying in a manger all those years ago, who has come to deal with our sins, he did not remain a baby for very long. I'm sure you are aware of that. He grew up, and he went about, you know, doing good. He healed the sick, gave the blind their sight, made the lame to walk. He raised the dead. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. That's one thing our Lord Jesus Christ concentrated on. He preached the gospel of the kingdom to the people, calling men and women to repent of their sins. In fact, his very first words when he started preaching was the word, repent, repent. That was his very first words. Jesus is more concerned about our spiritual need than anything else. Your spiritual need is the Lord's greatest concern. You remember the paralyzed man that was brought to the Lord Jesus Christ to be healed. When they let him down, you know, as you can imagine, all eyes were on the Lord. They, they, you know, they, they were expecting him to touch him or to say something and to heal the man. But what did he do? He says, your sins are forgiven you. That was that man's greatest need. You can be in, you can be in tremendous health and end up in hell. God you know, uh, forgave him his sins and then dealt with his physical um, needs and you know, raised him up again. Your greatest need is spiritual. Our Lord's miracles were not just, you know, things to um, dazzle people and so on. No. The miracles were to authenticate, you know, his message. To show people that he is God. That's why he did a lot of the miracles. Is to, you know, is to actually, you know, show people that what he's saying is true. And eventually dealt with sin by suffering and dying on the cross where he paid for our sin. God punished Jesus for your sin. I want you to pause for a minute and take that in. And God punished Jesus because of your sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we, through him, might become the righteousness of God in him. Because of my sin, our Lord came. God punished him for my sin. It is finished, he said. He did everything that is necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. We cannot add anything at all you know, to what Jesus did. To do that would be to denigrate the perfection of his work. And that you know, is not possible. So sin is such a serious issue that Christ came all the way from heaven to deal with it. 
There's no other way for sin to be forgiven. Nothing you can do that will make God forgive you for your sins. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. People think that if they did good works there and give to charity here and do this and help that, that you know, that's what the Muslims believe. Talk to Muslims. They will tell you that, that their good deeds is what will get them to heaven. They got a shock coming on that day. No. All our good deeds will never, never get us right with God. There's only one way to be forgiven. And again, it's through that little baby that was born just over 2,000 years ago. He said it himself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Except by me. And to, you know, he offers us forgiveness today. Now, it does not matter you know, how bad you've been or what you've done. God will forgive you if you will but repent. This salvation that you know, Christ offers you is absolutely free. You don't have to pay for it because our Lord has already paid for it. It's called grace. You need to repent of your sins. You need to turn from living your life without Christ. You need to confess your sins and ask God to forgive you. For God to cleanse you from your sin. Ask God to, for, to give you a new life and to lead you and to guide you for the rest of your life. Now, many of you, I'm sure if not all of you, you've heard the call so many times you know, to turn and trust in Christ. And you've done nothing at all about it. Some of you have been brought up in a Christian home. You've had the privilege of attending church, have the word of God read to you. You've seen the reality of it all in your parents and in the church and so on. And yet you remain unrepentant. It would be very, very sad if you perished while salvation is offered freely to you. It would be a complete tragedy. In fact, it would be the greatest tragedy if you perished because you want to live you know, for here and now. You want to do your own thing. God sacrificed his son for you. What more can God do that he has done for you? Ask yourself that question. What more can God do to convince you? What more can God do you know, to show you, you know, that term, yes, you need, you know, to turn and to turn to him. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, well, I want to enjoy myself before I give myself to Christ. It's a statement that assumes that Christians do not enjoy themselves. That the Christian life, you know, holds you back from enjoying yourself. Nothing could be further than the truth. Remember that hymn that we sang just a few minutes ago. It says, let me, let me remind you of what it says. It says, religion was never designed to make our pleasures less. No. It doesn't make our pleasures less at, at all. There was a time when I was gallivanting all over the place, thinking I was enjoying myself. 
you know, doing this, doing that, and the other, and so on. I thought, whoa, this is life, and so on. I can remember, you know, people used to talk to me about God in those days, and I never used to believe them. But when I came to Christ, oh, real, real joy, real enjoyment. There's nothing like it. My greatest regret today was that I didn't become a Christian earlier. I spent a lot of my time, you know, in the spiritual desert. No, when you come to Christ, you begin to enjoy life as you should. As you should. Although, talking about the future, the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ himself said it. You know, t- thinking about the future, though, says, I have come that they might have life and have life in all its fullness. What more could you want? What more could you want? What, what enjoyment you know, do you want to enjoy? I can assure you, I've done it all. I've got the T-shirt and the sweater as well. Nothing compares to knowing Christ. I can tell you that now. Nothing at all compares to knowing Christ. It's the most wonderful experience anyone can ever undergo. To know the peace of God in your life. Money can't buy that. Real joy comes you know, from the Lord, from knowing Christ. What are you going to enjoy? What is it? I can assure you, it's nothing compared to what Christ offers you. Well, some of you might say, well, Paul, I understand what you're saying, but somehow I'm not quite ready to give my life to Christ. Maybe in about two years' time or so, I might think about it. When I've done this and I've done that, I might think about it. Well, all I can say to you is this, that you're in a very dangerous position, very, very dangerous position. That day might never come. That day might never come. Let me show you what I'm talking about by looking at an incident in the Bible. Hopefully, that will help us to understand what I'm saying. Acts chapter 24. Acts of the Apostles chapter 24. <clears throat> and this was an incident with Felix, the governor of Caesarea. He's heard about Paul and he's preaching. And he wanted to meet Paul. And so he summoned for Paul. Look at verse 24 of um, Acts chapter 24. It says, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning faith in Christ. In other words, he heard the gospel from the apostle Paul. Now it says, Paul, you know, having, you know, having um, preached the gospel to him, began to apply the gospel to this man. This man, Philip, was a very corrupt man. He's a man that was um, very prone to bribery and all that kind of things. And Paul began to apply the gospel you know, to this man. He says in verse 25, he reasoned about righteousness 
you know, the kind of life that Felix was living. Paul challenged it about self-control. You know, the, the, you know, all the sort of things that they indulge in, which I can't even begin to, um, you know, say, you know, here is terrible. And also, judgments to come. This was a man that would pervert the cause of justice. And Paul began to apply the gospel, you know, to him. What happened? We see, you know, we read there in verse 25 that Philip was afraid. He was alarmed when he heard all this. He was convicted. He was convicted, you know, by the gospel. What did he do? Verse 25. Instead of repenting, he said to Paul, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will send for you. When I have a convenient time, I will send for you. God was very gracious to Felix. Because, um, you know, we read there in verse 26. In verse, um, yeah, that for two years, verse 27, sorry. For two years, you know, he was there. And uh, he, used to con- you know, he used to converse, you know, with, um, you know, Paul, you know, um, often. Sent for him often and conversed with him. So Paul was sharing the gospel all this time with him. But then the day came when he was transferred. He was transferred and he never heard the gospel from Paul anymore. And there's nothing at all in the entire record to show that this man turned to Christ. As far as we know, this man is burning in hell tonight because he postponed it. He postponed it. He would not. When he was convicted, rather than, you know, turn to God, he postponed it. He wanted to live, continue to live his immoral life. And he paid for it. That day might never come. If you keep saying to yourself, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it for now. And um, I'll do it. I'll turn to Christ, you know, some other time. That day might never come. Please be warned. That day might never come. Jesus offers you forgiveness and a hope for the future. Will you accept it? Will you accept it? When you accept it, you will understand the wonder of Christmas. God is a good God. God is a gracious God. A very patient God. But it comes a time when his patience runs out. Don't let his, don't let his patience run out on you. Trust in Christ today. Turn to him today before it is too late. May God you know, help every one of us you know, to actually turn and to know Christ as our Lord and Savior. Amen.